Episode 37 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with Grant Downey. Grant is a consultant in medical and performance solutions and he's also a mentor to a number of young coaches across the country and abroad as well. It was great to have Grant on the podcast. Um, Grant is someone who you will hear in the show that has worked at the top level for many years. Um, I really appreciated him giving up his time and coming on. And a big thank you to Callum Blades as well for the recommendation of Grant. Grant joined us to talk about how sports science has developed across his career. Also his work with Gareth Southgate, both as a player and a coach and where he sees the future of sports science. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Grant. I really enjoyed speaking to him, which is why the show uh, went on over an hour. I was going to split it into two parts, but I decided to keep it as one, um, because I think there's loads of really key information in there, so it was great to get Grant on. Please, as always, if you can, take two minutes out of your day, just head over to iTunes, leave us a five-star review and a short comment on which show you found um, the most beneficial, which guests you've enjoyed hearing the most. Um, I'd really appreciate that. It'd be great to get a few more reviews on there. Um, Thank you again for listening. Enjoy the episode with Grant. Welcome to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Grant Downey. Grant, how are you doing? I'm pretty well, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. No, I've got to say a massive thank you, actually, to one of our listeners, Callum, um, mm-hmm. Callum Blaze, who, who recommended you as a guest. So a big thanks to him and thank you for you to giving up your time. Um, you are our first OBE on the oh. podcast. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear about that. But also, you're currently a consultant in medical and performance solutions and also mentoring um, some young coaches so we're going to have a chat about that we've got loads of things I want to talk through but first of all Graham anyone that's not heard of you which I'm sure there's not many out there tell us about you tell us about your story and um, what you're up to listen well first of all thank you for inviting me on uh, I mean stories can go back as far as you want them to be I've been involved in professional football for what 33 years uh, but I also worked in the hospitals before that and I think it's important to stress that because I think Many modern therapists and S&C coaches really want to get involved in professional football straight away from a very young age and sometimes lack a little bit of life experience. And I think the one thing that hospitals taught me was to to deal with sometimes people who were dying, some people had real illnesses, people from all walks of life. And I'm quite convinced much of my long levity in sport has been down to the fact I dealt with multidisciplinary teams from a young age and saw it from a hospital angle. So after working in a hospital, I was fortunate enough to be offered a job at Lillishaw, which for those who probably can't remember, and many can't, that used to be the National Rehabilitation Centre for for long-term injuries run by the FA. I worked there for eight years as a clinical lead physio. Uh, I then went up and spent nine years at Glasgow Rangers as the head physio. Uh, after a period of that time, I went to Middlesbrough as head of sports medicine science for the first team academy for eight years. Uh, I then had seven years at Manchester City, where I worked mainly in the academy, but also with the emerging women's programme as the head of performance. Uh, and so therefore, laterally in the last year, uh, I have just sort of, I decided at 55, I'd had enough of sort of 
full-time sport and I think it's a great time to want to be able to leave where you feel as if you're still hopefully making a difference during my career I've been moved on twice by clubs which is quite normal and I think people have to accept the, the normality of that and take it in his stride learn from it but I actually wanted to I love mentoring younger people I, I really enjoy problem solving and I wanted to get back to do what I do best but also have a bit of free time if I'm honest too because you know, anyone who knows work, what football's like, you know, it's seven days a week. It is all hours, but it's meant to be. But I do think that can take its toll on you as a person. And I think it hadn't with me, but I didn't want it to. And as I said to you, I've, I've learned to survive, sort of not survive, because surviving is no fun. Thriving is what I want to do in high-level sport. I've been sacked twice. I know what it's like, but that's normal. And I think it's trying to get that across the younger practitioners coming into the game, whatever they're going to do. You know, you, your long levity, you know, you want to have a job for life, but you're not meant to. And that's a good thing. Yeah, I agree fully. And, and a lot of uh, previous guests have talked about the same sorts of things. So, yeah, it's definitely the way it needs to go. So there's loads of ways you can go with this conversation, Graham, but I'm going to try and keep a little bit of structure, stuff that we've spoke about before. Well, talk us through the OBE first. Well, that's very kind of you to me. I, again, you don't know anything about things like that. I remember Sue, my partner, when was it? Probably November. Uh, I can't remember what year I was awarded it, actually, if the truth be told. We're probably going about 2013. But in 12, she phoned me up saying, I've got a letter here. And it, it says from Her Majesty's you know, service. And I thought, oh, God, what have I done with my tax? You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's the usual sort of thing you think of that. Then she opened it up and it said it's from the Prime Minister, you know, inviting you, would you like to be in the New Year's Honours list? Which is a total surprise because initially you think, which one of my friends is playing a prank on me? But I then found out later that there was a number of people from staff in the FA to some orthopaedic consultants from people like Gareth Southgate had got together and written letters recommending me for my services to physiotherapy and working with young people. And I think, you know, you take immense pride, but, you know, I go back to the age of 11. I'm badly dyslexic. My reading and writing skills aren't great. But at 11, I was told by one teacher, I've got no hope of being successful or any career in life. I had to stand up in an English class and read out loud. I couldn't do it. Can't do it now. And I don't. And I will tell people I can't do it now. I'm very happy talking to you. I'm very happy talking in the stage of 500 people. I'll get a buzz out of that. If you ask me to read where the fire exit is, I'll panic. So actually relating to that teacher then the next day meeting a teacher who said you know you need to leave mainstream education go to what was then called the remedial school for a year to learn how to read and try and improve yourself but he helped me and inspired me to what well, I could make a difference I could have a career it was a very an emotional thing because you have to remember you get an award but that award is for as much as the people who helped you achieve it so for me it was a wonderful thing for me for my family but for many people who helped me, and that inspires me to want to help other people. Yeah, and I was, I was reading the um, the testimonial Gareth Southgate has given you on your website. I mean, it's a, it's a glowing testimonial, and I, and I think he says he worked with you both as a player and a coach. Is that right? Yes, I worked with Gareth on, on, I think, three separate occasions. Once when he was very young at Crystal Palace at Lillyshaw, which was when he came to Lillyshaw. But I was I don't think I actually treated him, but I met him then. And then obviously I worked with him when he was a Middlesbrough captain as a player. Uh, and he was an outstanding captain, not just on the pitch, but off the pitch. You could go to Gareth with anything and he would he would listen. If you had trouble with treating another player, he would be there to listen to. He was an ultimate professional himself. And then obviously he became the manager of Middlesbrough. And, you know, I, you know Gareth had a tough time at Middlesbrough as the manager, but that's partly because, you know, the playing budget was cut by half. But I would almost suggest if it wasn't for that experience, he wouldn't be the great manager he is now. 
you know, so sometimes you've got to go through those periods. But throughout it all, you know, I've continued to speak to Gareth. You know, we we see each other not that often now, but we can speak each other if he texts or, or we phone and we can speak. But you take off as you've never been away from him. And he's someone who, you know, I know I've spoken to him about advice in my life and vice versa. You know, and, I, and again, I think if you... A lot of people work so much on their professional relationships, but not the personal side of it. And, you know, Gareth is a real modern leader because he actually gets to know the players as people. And for me, that's the key to any good management. And Gareth's excellent at that. Yeah, that's, that's good to hear. And I think that comes across as well. Like, obviously, I've, I've never met him, but I think just watching from afar, I think you can see that through the, through the TV and how he is with players. Um, I, th- I think that comes across. I think he's very he's very honest. He tries to he tries to understand the players and their journey, where they've come from, and and what what makes them who they are. And that's how, you know we, we, I think we all forget that. And you know I I learned that from a very very young age that if you really want to get the best out of people, you know treat people. And I've always said that during my career, and I spoke to Gareth about it when he was a player. You know I never once treated Gareth Southgate the player. I treated Gareth Southgate the person. And actually, you know, there's a little bit too much talk in the media of footballers, not people. And behind every person who's a footballer, there is a person. There's a person who's got anxieties, worries, relationship anxieties, possibly fallen out with mum and dad, may have fallen out with a brother, sister. You know, it, 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 and it's getting to know that person will sometimes explain you peaks and troughs in performance. It's not just technical and tactical. It's much more than that. And I think in the modern world, you know, S&C coaches, sports scientists, physios get to know the person. And Gareth is very good at that. Yeah, I think that's top advice. So I wanted to tie in with, uh, you mentioned your work at Lillyshaw, and this is quite a big question, take it any way you want, but mm. how do you think sports science as a whole or performance or whatever you want to call it has developed since your time at Lillyshaw? Well, do you know, it was really interesting. I was thinking we spoke the other day about this and I had forgotten actually, and then it came back to me that really the FA were integral in setting up what was called the Human Performance Department at Lillyshaw when I was there. This guy called John Brewer, who's a sort of a fairly well-known physiologist, came and set that up with a professor from Clyde Williams from Loughborough. And they started to the very first time almost profiling players. And I think, you know, sports science has taken off since. I mean, you know, in those days it was almost... You know, there wasn't such things as fitness coaches even. There wasn't sports scientists. There wasn't S&C coaches. If you take it fast forward it now, clubs have, you know, it's an integral part of the, the, the me- is it part of the medical team? Is it part of the coaching team? Now, there's a good question and we can talk about that later. I have my views and it changes because it changes of where it should sit. But I think it's a massively important part but no more important part than the psychology, no more important part than the medical, no more important part than the coaching. So it's fitting it in. And I think, you know, probably the last 20 years, it's had a quite, it's had a great right to where it is. And if anything, it's now got to just embed itself in and try and, try and ensure that where it's, what it's measuring needs to be important. And I think there's a little bit of a worry from my angle that maybe we're measuring some things that are not as important as others but there are some things absolutely vital to measure but we've also got to be comfortable ultimate performance is not measurable and I think you know that we've got to be careful with you know is football art or is it science and there's a great question for you because I think it's art applied by scientific principles you know but that's my take on it so yeah, no, that's really interesting. I, I think that as well, that, that'll come down to the club. It'll come down to the manager and the other staff that are involved as well, won't it? So it's not a definitive answer of 
<laughs> this is your job as a sports scientist or this is your job as a as a therapist or whatever it is. It, it depends, doesn't it? I think you know, you'd have a very important nail on the head where I get a lot of younger physios and S&Cs phoning me up. So we've got a new manager. I prepared a presentation to tell him how I'm going to do the job for him. And I'm going, well, do you not think you should maybe listen to him first? Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, the, the sort of the job as a physio and S&C coach does change according to the manager. Now, that doesn't mean you ever change your values or your principles, but the way you deliver it can change. And I think that's exciting. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work with many different managers that all got strengths and areas that you would probably say maybe other managers are stronger in. But ultimately, it's a total package. And I think the best the best managers will have a very close relationship with their lead S&C and sports scientists. In fact, it's the right hand. And so when you see most modern coaches work they have a have a have a fitness person beside them and that's right and their 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 sort of their their principles of working their philosophy must be marred with the manager's way of wanting to play and everyone must then understand it and i think it then it goes to the medical staff they have to understand how does the manager want players to return to train does he want them to be fully ready to play matches well if that's the case it might take longer some players need time to perform so you have to have these discussions to get as i call it clear lines of communication and if i'm honest they're lacking in some of the clubs i see partly because of the general sometimes inexperience of staff sometimes because staff realise, as we'd say in Scotland, you're on a sugarly nail, you know, you're in a difficult situation for your job, you could lose it tomorrow. But actually, you know, these are the fundamentals of how you're going to work. If you can't, if you can't get a form of good communication between your medical, your sports science and your coaching staff, you're not going to perform. Do you think that's like a really key skill missing at the moment with some practitioners is the fact that they have the knowledge, but then to actually know where they fit into the the staff or the system or whatever it is that's that's how the the top practitioners are doing it i think i think again it's the fact of the answer is in answer to your question yes but it's not their fault it's because they're very young and you know with all due respect university can't teach you this it's a bit you know you when you learn to drive you know you've got l plates on then you take them off and then you're a so-called safe driver but you're not you know, I mean, and we're asking younger practitioners to go and drive on a Grand Prix circuit with having just taken L plates off. It doesn't teach them the real road safety and it doesn't teach them the communication skills. So I think the hard thing is staff rightfully are in a rush to get to where they want to get to. But sometimes having a slower journey isn't a bad thing. And I think it's, you know, I, I feel very privileged that I've been able to work for 32 years full-time, one year as a consultant and probably a few more years like this. But will younger practitioners be able to sort of have that long levity of a career? Possibly not because it's harder today. And I genuinely think it's harder than when I was younger. I equate to that fact that when I was at Rangers, I think Walter Smith, the advocate, probably phoned me three or four times in their life out of work. It never was bothered from five o'clock with an email. You know, today it's 24-7, you know, Sky Sports News has got some wonderful qualities, but is football really that important? It's 24 hours, seven days a week, really? I don't think that's healthy in life for players, but for staff. So therefore, you know, when I think of the duty of care, not just for players, but for staff, it's, we've got to be careful they don't get so absorbed in their technical knowledge, they forget to develop as people. Yeah, I think 
with that, with with coach health as well, it's actually interesting you you bring that up because the the episode before this one is actually with a, another coach, and that's what it's about is about coach health. We, yeah. we bang on a lot, don't we, about recovery with players and keeping players healthy, and I think we forget sometimes that the the coaches have to be on their A game a lot of the time as well. I think you know, irrespective if you're uh, you know you often hear in football clubs you know it's a day off, but but apart from injured players, well why don't injured players need a day off? What about the staff treating them? What about the S and C staff that have got to come and look after them? And I think it's it's important that the you know the the physical well-being of players is I think pretty well catered for now in football. It really is. There's some really good practitioners, but do we understand mental welfare? And I'll often say to to staff out of interest, how many of you sleep with your phone in the bedroom? And they all go, well, we all do. It's an alarm clock. I always buy them an alarm clock. You don't need your phone in your bedroom. But then they get panicky because they're worried about, you know, and and, and the way we live today that, you know, we're all in contact. I mean, I, I think I went through five years of my career and there was one day I was not contacted by work. Now, when I look back, that's not really good. I'm not trying to, I should have a badge of honour for that. Quite the opposite. I should need a kick in the backside, you know, because actually my my future mantle is to help maybe chief executives see a bigger picture. And rather than necessarily in the long term paying an excellent S&C or physio more money, why not actually hold their pay the same and employ another member of staff so they can Asian take a day off and, and remain fresh, remain active, so they can make key important decisions? Because it's... No one works eleven out. Sorry, eleven months a year, seven days a week, and it's totally effective. That's not healthy. It's not good for anyone. And I think we've got to. Do we think that's clever? Because we shouldn't. If we, I used to, and I was stupid, you know. So don't be as stupid as I was. Yeah, and, and and if we relate that to players as well, no one's going to do that with a player, are they? We're not going to get players in seven days a week and and run them into the ground. So I don't see the why we do it with coaching. Exactly. You know, and I think coaches need a break from it. Players need a break from coaches. Coaches need a player a break from players. And, I, you, know, you know, and you get to that stage, you know, when you work with teams and you travel with staff, you know, you spend more time with coaching staff as a medic, an S&C, than you do with your loved ones and partners. You know, and, and so you've got to have a good relationship with them. And if that relationship is a bit tainted, then it can at times because of pressure. You know, coaches are under ridiculous pressure at first team. I don't know what the average tenure now is for a championship manager, but I know it's less than two years. Now, that's not healthy for anyone. And do the clubs get really that much better results by changing? And, you know, and, and, and so as an S&C, as a physio, you know, you've got to be ready for this different ways of working and be and, and, and understand there's lots of different ways to achieve an end result and which coach is best, who knows? Yeah. And I think it's interesting you brought up before about uh, like the, the sort of hierarchies at, at clubs in terms of um, like the, whether it's directors, CEOs. So I wanted to ask you, what what's your in your experience, what do you think their view is of? And I know this might be um, contextual club to club, but what do you think their view is on a sports science department or even like an individual practitioner, a sports scientist, or an S and C coach? I think, and again, it's so important you ask them that question because it's amazing they will probably see it differently to you. So, for example, I remember recently about two or three years ago, I don't know, probably longer, five years ago at Manchester City, some of the academy staff wanted us to, to buy an odd board to, take, you know, to look at the hamstring strength of eccentric, for the eccentric output for players. And I was saying to them, how do you think I should sell that to the board? And they went, well, just tell them it's an interesting piece of research. Now, I guarantee if I told that to the board, they would have just said thanks, but no thanks. 
But if I turned around to them and said, I think we can cut the number of days by half of these injuries, we're going to measure it, and I'll produce you a report this next year, that will mean you will have to buy less players. So therefore, you know, the amount of money you're investing is less for to give me this. Will you give it? And the answer is yes. Yeah. So it's no, but also you have to then prove that. And if you don't prove it, ask yourself why. And be prepared to do critic analysis of your own department. And I think if the board see the fact that you actually critique yourself and are able to offer constructive evaluation of how you can get better, they actually, you know, you gain credibility. So don't be frightened. You know, we, you know, I've been at clubs where I remember at one club I was at, we did have a few hamstring injuries and I looked into it, brought in an external person to look at it and advise. And everyone says, you're crazy. You're making yourself vulnerable. Quite the opposite. The chief executive applauded it because he saw the fact I was actually able to not only audit myself, I would actually bring someone else in who was external to me, who could do it and actually report that to him. I had no problem with it. I sat there as he gave the report. I learned from it. He did too. Do you think that's, in the modern day, with modern the way jobs are now, do you think that's been affected by people just worrying about the fact that they, they could lose their job tomorrow and they don't do things like that? I, I absolutely, 100%. But I think if you want to really get people to work well in the department, and if you take the modern, if you take, you know, again, it's different to all levels of clubs, but again, the last club I was full-time at Manchester City, if I look at first team academy women's programme, S&C, medical, psychology, performance analysis staff, it's 65 plus full-time. Mm. Now, what you've got to be able to create is a way of working and in a way of working is hopefully is high challenge, high support, where you actually are pushing the staff, but understanding the methodology of the club or the manager. Uh, and actually, you will take risk. If you take risk, they will be, you know, if I go to a club now in my different capacity in auditing, and I don't see one recurring injury, I don't think anyone's ever pushed the players. You should have a recurring injury. It's normal. Mm. Why are you trying, if you're trying to hide it, show me it. I'm actually, I've got, you've got more credit by showing it to me. I recently attended a club in Spain and I was asked to do an audit there and they'd had a quite a number of hamstring problems. And when I first went in, they didn't know me. And you can tell they were really nervous. Like, who's this person coming in? He's going to hire staff. He's going to hire fire staff, which I didn't have the power to do nor want to do. And then, excuse me, they give me a presentation on the facts. Then that's my opinion. For the next hour, I told them about the two I'd really messed up at the time I was at Middlesbrough. Now, in, as soon as I said that, the next hour they just talked to me because they realised I was a normal human being who had done their job and understand the difficulties because it's not easy. And I think any, and I think if you're the leader in the organisation, you've got to paint pictures like that, that you can show your vulnerability to staff, but you can still make decisions. I think that, that just helps to build relationships, doesn't it? And you mentioned about Gareth Southgate before, saying about his time at, at Middlesbrough, and I'm sure he's had... Many times as a player where you look at it at the time, you think, oh, my God, this isn't a good time. But then you look back on it and you think, well, I learned absolutely loads. And you're not always going to go through your career and just be successful time after time after time. I mean, you, you need these challenges. You need to have, I remember very early on one of my challenges at Rangers was, you know, I also remember you had, most of the players there were all treated by myself. And in, in these days, it's very common, as you'll see, that players go all over the world for treatment. I'd never really come across this in the Rangers days. It didn't exist until I remember once Brian Laudrup said to me, you know, I'd like to bring in a guy to help me perform. And I was thinking, this is very unusual. Why, why can't we do this? And again... And I remember Walter Smith saying, well, go and see what he does. Don't just do... And when I went and see what he did, he didn't do anything special, but he actually made Brian feel very good about himself. 
And I understood that. And it then made me realise, well, actually, these people can go away and do that, but it's far better to bring them in the club to do it because, A, you can see what they're doing, B, you can integrate it into your plan. And thirdly, you might learn something that you don't know yourself. And I, I learned one or two things from this guy. I remember when I was at Middlesbrough, George Bortem, Julio Arca, regularly saw therapists who they actually sort of believed in and I brought them into the club and eventually they were asking me ideas about different things and we exchanged ideas and it was always funny because I remember the guy with Julio Arker who treated him was actually also Sergio Aguero's physio when I arrived at Manchester City the first person I saw was his physio who came straight up to me respected me because of who I was and what I was and everyone's saying well how do you know him well we know each other because we've worked together before it's about relationships and it's understanding and, and you know just because we treat a hamstring injury one way with great research in Manchester and in Argentina they apply none of that research but it still works there doesn't mean we're better yeah just means it's different and also you need to understand if a player's been treated one way all his life probably to start treating him differently might actually be more harmful yeah and I, I spoke to Matt Springer about this we had him on a couple of episodes ago and he was saying about the it could just be that it's the relationship with that that coach or that therapist that they don't necessarily get on with one person so much so they go to another it's, it's also you know players when they're injured or, 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 or wanting to gain fitness from a long term injury sometimes don't like being in the club because the one thing they detest more than anything else at 10.30 when the team's training they're not training and you know you take Manchester City's training facility probably costs the best part of £200 million it's brilliant it's one of the it's the best football training facility I've ever seen in my life but when you're injured, it's not very nice. Mm. You know, you'd probably rather be back in Spain in a very simple gym, but seeing your mum and dad every night because you can and you feel more comfortable from that perspective. So again, it comes back to the fact of, you know, when you're when you're particularly when treating injuries, look at the player, look at the person, understand them. Is this an opportunity that they could go back home for? Maybe, you know, they're out for six months. So why don't every four weeks, if everything performs well, you set your goals and tell the player, you know, I would like to have your range of movement by X in three weeks' time. If you achieve it, go and spend five days with your family. When you come back, we'll work for another three weeks. And if you achieve my next goal, you can go for another five days with your family. They'll work so much better. Work with them. And, and work with that person, find out what's important in their life. I've had players tell me the most important person in their life was their dog and he couldn't get into the country because he's in quarantine still, they're missing their dog. might mean nothing to me, but it means everything to them. I remember treating a player who had a, had a very severely handicapped uh, brother who he didn't see very often. So when he was injured, was it an opportunity that he could also take a Monday off and then, you know, work and then go and see his brother? Now that probably, if you allowed it, occasionally helped his injury. And sometimes we are a little bit robotic and thinking it's a physical marker. It needs to be better. Now, just because we can, it's like GPS. If you take GPS, GPS is massively used in football to monitor load or so people tell me. Well, I argue it doesn't monitor load. It measures physical output. It doesn't tell you about emotional load. It doesn't tell you about mental load. It doesn't tell you about what's socially going on in a person's life. It doesn't tell you about the decisions they've got to make. <clears throat> so when we're really calculating load, you know, are we prepared to look at the things that are not quantifiable, which are probably more important than the things that are quantifiable? Yeah, and that, that has a massive bearing on recovery, like you say, doesn't it? Because it can control stress a lot better, could control the cortisol levels. And... Absolutely. 
when you're in that stressed out environment, you want everything to just to be to calm down as much as possible. And if that's a trip home, surely that's the, the better thing to do. And I think that's what I learned from my time at Lillishaw because Lillishaw, and possibly not many of the younger practitioners will have ever been, but in its middle of nowhere, which is you know has got its advantages for long-term injured players. On top of that, from the main road to the actual centres, two and a half miles up a tree-lined hill, and so you really feel very isolated. But for a long-term injured player. That means they can get away from the club, possibly their wife, their two children who, who they're worried about, and they can just focus on themselves a little bit. And so, therefore, one of the successes of Lillishaw, I'm sure, was the, the physical side of rehabilitation was pretty good, but I think the mental side was probably the most important bit. It was an opportunity for the player just to be psychologically safe in an environment and they could concentrate on themselves and away from the pressures of the club, the family, and hopefully help them get better quicker. I think that uh, correlates quite well to like a, a boxing training camp, doesn't it? Like when a boxer takes himself away. Exactly, exactly. You need to sometimes take yourself out of a situation. I mean, I know now I'm moving to live in an island in Scotland, and they're one of the least evolved want to do that, to lead a different type of lifestyle. And I mentor some younger practitioners now, but I'm... I've told them all and they won't realise this until they come and all of them are going to come and spend two days in the next year with me there. But part of the reason to do that is to take them out of their work, put their mobile phone in a corner and talk about them, talk about their development, talk about what's important, how they're going to implement it. And I think it's so important. I used to do that with staff regularly at Manchester City, probably less so at Rangers. Yes, definitely at Middlesbrough. Often used to meet staff off-site and say, wear your own clothes, come as yourself. You don't let that uniform always define you. And I think it's important you're able to do that with players. As people, I sometimes would, not with the younger players I wouldn't meet uh, out of work, but with some of the more senior players, even when Gareth was playing, I'd occasionally meet him. I've met many players just for something to eat or a coffee, just to find out how are you really? I, you know, there seems to be something wrong. And sometimes out of the training ground, they'll talk a lot more to you than when they're in the training ground. You, they come into the training ground. I mean, I've often said it, you know, people forget football training grounds are like the gladiatorial den. No one can be ill. No one can admit anything's wrong with them. I'm going to be in a fight here. I'm going to take your place. I'm wonderful. You meet them for a coffee, everything's wrong. And, you, and again, as an S&C, as a physio, do you really get to know that person? And you've got to build a relationship. And that doesn't happen on Facebook. That doesn't happen on Twitter. That happens by face-to-face conversation when you'll probably have to do very little talking a lot of listening and remembering and remembering what's important to that person and then just come back to it now and then understanding that like when Julio Arco who used to live it from Argentina on his own used to say to Grant when Herman comes to stay with me I go out with the team with him for three weeks I, I so look forward to him coming I, and I saw what he did as a treatment he was no different to what I would have done but actually I don't have time to take him out for tea every night and that will help his recovery. And are you big enough as a practitioner to actually accept that? It's not about you. It's about the player. It's about the club. And again, when you're younger, listen, when I'm 25, that affected me. Don't pretend I'm wrong. I did. Yeah, I took that personally. But as you get older, you realise it's not about you. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you will be come and go as practitioners. But what do you want to be remembered by? You know, I, I would like to, you know, I'll be remembered by what people say. But I, I know what that would like to be for myself, you know, uh, but it's important to try and have that to understand your own why. And I think with with players using like external practitioners at the moment is is I think this 
off-season or pre-season period has probably been the biggest one I've seen of players going out and using other other practitioners. What what is in your experience? What have been the the positives and the negatives? Is that you, obviously you've discussed a few of the positives already? But are there any more? And then what are, what are some negatives to it as well? There's big negatives, and I think we should start with that because one of my concerns, and you know, listen, I I, I love social media. So, as someone of you might argue is an old dinosaur, you know, what would I like social media for? Because it's a great form of medium. It's a great way to contact people. It's a great way to see what's going on in the world. However, I do get a little bit disturbed at the number of people who are posting what they're doing with with, with players, which could be patience for a start. So, really, you're breaking confidentiality. You know, what is wrong? Uh, and so who are you posting that for, for them or for you? I also have to smile at some of the stuff I see being done. This is a close season. Why do people have to be doing fast foot ladders, crossing of the football in a close season? Now that, for me, is you know kind of strange. If I was probably the club SMC, I'd be thinking, what are you doing? You know, Are you doing it for their benefit, your benefit? Are they asking you to do it? Is this not a wonderful opportunity to be maybe maybe working on those Nordics to really massively increase that hamstring strength since that's the major problem of footballers? So you possibly would be more gym-bound, more sprinting. Uh, so some of the stuff I think I see being done, I question. You know, who's it being done for? Uh, but I love the fact that players want to return fit. I love the fact that players are actively, you know, I, I remember what someone once telling me, I think, it, you know, they know a couple of players who now employ almost their own full-time chef. Now, you might argue, gosh, is that a little bit decadent in the world that they can afford it? Well, I actually think if they want to spend their own money on a guy who's going to cook proper food for them that's going to keep them healthy, that's brilliant. Is that not fantastic? Because actually they're investing in their own health and well-being. We should applaud that. Now, I still would like to learn to cook, but at the same time, I think it's wonderful. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. So there's lots of, you know, you've got to see the both sides of the equation. But if you can't cook and you can afford to employ a chef who can cook good, proper, organic food for you, your likelihood is you're going to pick up less injury. So it's a good thing. And as I said, your players returning back fit is a good thing, but fit for what? And so, therefore, are these close-season programmes being run from the club angle, which is what you would like, or are they run by external people who are just trying to make the buck on the fact that some footballers have a lot of money? And I'll leave that open to the listeners to decide. Yeah. And this might not be a question that you can answer. You might have to go to the practitioner or the player for this. But do you think that the sessions are more led by the player in that period or do you think they're more led by the coach or a little bit of both? I think it depends on the relationship, doesn't it? Because if you're the player going to a practitioner, you're going to dictate what you want done. There are certain times, though, clubs will organise for players to go and see certain practitioners. So therefore, they'll, so it depends on the relationship. I would say that could be 50-50. I think the key is, though, I would advise any external people to make sure they are working with the club. So are they doing a proper needs analysis? I've seen this done very well. I've also seen it done not so well. And when it's done very well is the clubs will cooperate. They will give the relevant information because you would be giving information of what you want to work to, for that player to work on. So it can, and you know, on the whole, I think it's better than it's negative. But the negatives I can see, and I do think there are some people you know, maybe they're using it to make money. And listen, we all need to make money. So you could argue they're supplying a need, but I think it could be done better. Mm. So what are some other factors of it being done well then, Grant? You said about tying in with the with the club and 
um, possibly getting some data from that club if, if needed. Data, but also feeding that information back to the club. I think where it's been done, you know, you know, you sometimes see people doing it in the sort of the 45 degree heat of Dubai. Is that really a great place to go and do the training? Would you not be far better just going to mainland Portugal or Spain where it's warm, but not too warm? I do like the fact that they use some of the very good sort of, you know, the sort of facilities around Europe. Uh, so I think that's that's a good thing. But I think the whole key is, is you know, what is the plan for that player? Is it for one year? Is it for two years? Is it for three years? Does it take into account their previous injury history? You know, I think those are all the key things. And I think, you know, we're living in a world now where, you know, I was approached by a football agency recently to say, would I work for them and do some, give them some medical advice? And I was a bit reluctant to do it because I I didn't want to be put between the face of a, of a what's the right word, the club, as I, you know, because I work for quite a few clubs in different scenarios. So I didn't do it. Not that I think it was wrong, but I think with the role I do, it would be wrong. You know, so, but I, I like the fact that agents want to take advice, but I think it's, you know, it, it, I just didn't want to do it because of the work I do. Yeah, and I, and I think that's fair enough because it, it, it might clubs. You don't know how clubs are going to look at it, do you? you like, there's certain coaches I've spoken to that are really against it because of previous experiences, maybe bad experiences, and then others that are all for it as as long as it's done in the right way. And I think that if it's done correctly, it's it, it, it's okay. But it's it's something I wouldn't have been comfortable with doing with the role I'm doing at the moment. Uh, and uh, but, but again, if an agency is taking an interest in its player's health, that can't be a bad thing, can it? No. Mm-hmm. And it's like you say, with all the with hiring a chef. I mean, I'm sure if uh, and I agree with the skill of cooking and things like that. I, I think the players should learn that because I think that is just a, a, a general life skill that everyone should learn. Not necessarily to be a Michelin star chef, but I think you should be able to cook up a good, nutritious meal. But surely we'd all do something similar in terms of t- trying to take a, not a shortcut, but, but trying to help ourselves out as much as possible if we had the financial backing that the players have got. Listen, I think, you know, if you're a modern Premier League player, you know, it, it, everyone says they would dream of being that, but they, they might dream of it. They might not really want the reality. They might not want to be training on Christmas Day and training and then being ridiculed in the press the whole time. They'll take the nice bit, like the salary, but not all the crap that goes with it. But I think, you know, if you can afford to have a chef, why not? As you say, I think you're spot on, though. You should learn to cook. You should learn to have life skills. I think it's important to, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to be a footballer forever. And when you are that footballer, what special is the footballer, not you? And one day you're going to return to normal society. And I often say, you know, football's a bubble. And when you live in that bubble, it's quite, you know, you know, I, you know, when I go into places where I've worked for the last 15 years, I've never paid for a lunch. I've never paid for a breakfast. I could have eaten a meal if I want. That's not normal, you know. So, and as staff, don't get sucked into that bubble thinking you're special because you're not. Because one day you're coming out of it. And that's why I'm saying it's important to try and keep around you some normality. And I think normality is very, very difficult for young players if they're earning vast sums of money because everyone wants... I also I remember having these conversations with Paul Gascoigne regularly at Rangers because Paul, as you can imagine, was a quite a troubled young man, but a lovely young man and a lovely, you know, a very decent personality. Yes, he was, was he unstable. Well, that's fairly obvious, the answer to that. But But a lot of it came from a lot of the hangers-on around him. And it's a bit like I used to say to him, you know, at the end of the day, Paul, are these people going to be there when you're a bricklayer? 
Because if they are, the answer is keep them. If they're not, what they, you know, because you get that in, in all sorts of society. People want to be sometimes part of something successful. And again, I'm a great believer, players in particular, like backroom staff who just treat them as normal people. And again, do I treat them all the same? Quite, no, I don't. I don't treat any of them the same. I treat them all uniquely differently. I try and get the best out of them. I treat them with the same value. There's none of them are more special than anyone else. However, I do treat them all uniquely differently because they're different people. And if you remember that as a practitioner, you'll go a long way that they'll remember you by. And I still am in contact with a lot of players, not about medical issues or anything like that, just to see how they are as people and vice versa. I think that statement you make in terms of treat the person, not the injury or not the, not the footballer or whatever you want to say, I think that's absolutely crucial, isn't it? And it's, I think it's a forgotten about aspect of, of what we do that we're dealing with humans and, and it's a big part of what we do. I think, you know, I, I, you say it's something I, I've regularly been quoted on and I said that during my 32-year career in full-time football, I never once treated an injury. You know, however, I did treat thousands of people that was injured. And I think it's it's so important to, to remember that, you know, we've, we've probably... Have we maxed the physical qualities out we're trying to work on? We can probably hopefully improve on the hamstring problems we've got at the moment. But physically, you know, players are fairly robust and doing fairly well. Mentally, I think there's great capacity for them to improve. But if we can improve them as human beings, increase their ability to want to learn, I think they will make better decisions. And that's, that's almost, you know, so we've got to be careful. We don't keep chipping away at the 0.1%. What are we doing for the 20% that we could really develop? The hard thing is this 20% isn't measurable. It doesn't develop at the same rate. It might never develop. It actually might develop in five minutes. But are you prepared to develop the human being? And if you are, be surprised at how, how much a person can improve, not only as a player, but as a practitioner too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting and a really key point for coaches to consider. Um, what's your views on so I've, I've, I've spoke to a lot of people that talk about like training intensity or training load and the fact there's been so much talk about injury prevention over the last few years and, and load monitoring what's your views on the intensity that we that we train players at do you think we're, we're going we're being too careful now and like you said you mentioned before didn't you about the, the injury rates that if injury rates are, are too low are we getting what we need from them in terms of performance I, I think <laughs> We want to start that. If you go into the academy model, first of all, I still think in the academy model, too many people are looking at results and not what you're trying to achieve. Because for me, in an academy system, you're trying to make a player at 22 be ready for anything. Happily, you know, I, I sometimes go into academies and smile when I see recovery sessions, you know, match day minus one, match day minus two. What's that all about in an academy? So I, I see no point of that. I see monitoring load. But these aren't matches. They're another training session for the big match, which comes when you're 22. And as a result of it, you'll see you go into academies and the day after a match, it's like recovery training. Guys on, a, on bikes and foam rollers, they're around 19. Get them out doing a little bit of, you know, not high intensity work, but get them out on their feet. Because at the end of the day, if they're eventually going to play in the Champions League, they've got to be ready to play, you know, in mid-August and try and peak at the end of, you know, beginning of June possibly. And I think it's so, so difficult. So I think at first team it's dif difficult now because you take some of the Premier League players, they're still playing football now. 
you know, in the corporate America or in, in, in the Africans' cup. It's, it's, it's staggering. So how do you, you know, these guys are almost just being maintained, and I get that. But I think when they're younger, they can be exposed to, to not so much higher volumes, definitely higher volumes, possibly more intense sessions, but also variable sessions. I'm a great believer in multi-sport to 16. I don't really think the, you know, the academy system, you know, many clubs now are introducing one day a week alternative sports. I think it's a great idea. I think we, you know, we're trying to develop, excuse me, robust individuals. So just playing one sport from sort of 16 down, excuse me, isn't a great thing in my opinion. So I do think we should track load, but what do we mean by load? And as I said, your load for me is physical, it's mental, it's cognitive, it's decision-making. So for example, I remember Jay, one young lad at Manchester City who went away on loan and he was playing at Aston Villa and we'd got his GPS stats. And the week before, he'd played for the 23s and his running stats were, let's call them, this height. And then when he went away on loan, he played his first game for Burton Albion against Aston Villa. And those stats there were lower playing for, for Burton against Aston Villa. And yet he admitted it was the most exhausted he'd been for three days after that game. And yet he'd run less. Yeah. But that was the decision making. That was the emotional playing in front of a crowd of 32,000 people. Yeah. So maybe what we've got to get better at doing is exposing younger players to that type of load earlier so they get more used to it. So I think load is a is such a generic term and, and GPS is a massive tool, very important on injury management, very important. It's almost like your dashboard. It just tells you how much fuel's in the tank. But sometimes you've got to drive fast. Sometimes you've got to drive slower. So what we shouldn't do is just keep looking at it and basing everything on it. I think that's really interesting. I went, I went to the soccer science conference uh, last week or the week before, and Paul Bradley talked about um, distance covered, and he actually quoted some of his previous research and said that that was research at the time, but now he's looking into more of what that distance is and what it's made up of, yeah. which I think is really important because if we didn't used to do that, did we? We just used to look at this team covers yeah. this amount, and and that's good. Surely that's good. And you're like, well. Then you look at Barcelona, who were winning everything at the time and hardly covering any distance at all. So this is a whole different area of it, isn't it? The, the sort of psychological side of it, the cognitive side of it. I think that's, it. and you've said before, it's a, it's a hard thing to monitor, but it, it has to be taken into account. I think, you know, the, the, so nice to hear someone like Paul, who's a real, you know, Paul's a very bright lad. You know, and a very, very good academic, but has also got some practical experience support. I mean, he, he worked under Chris Barnes at Middlesbrough for a period of time, and I remember having some good discussions with Paul in his younger days. And it's lovely when people like that who produce research then are prepared to come back two years later and say, well, actually, what I found is now moved on. And that's where football's got to make sure it actually has, as I call it, links to good academiology. You know, football is by definition practical-based. And so the people working it have to be practical, but there must be links to these type of people and the work they are doing to make sure both talk to each other. And I think, as you've rightfully said, you know, I think we all would agree now that, you know, probably the further, by running more, does that mean you're going to win games? Probably not. Sometimes the best teams do the least. It's because the ball speed travels further and the ball travels faster. And sometimes it's about key moments and key decisions. So I think tracking physical output is very important, but I think we probably were trying to predict too much from it and we were trying to predict, well, more physical output will, will equal more injuries. Well, that's not the case because there are so many other contributory factors. As I said to you, you know, a player might, 
I've got no, I can't prove this to you, but I, I can always tell you the number of players I've worked with whose wives have just had a first baby who in the first three months after that pick up an injury. Why? Because they're not sleeping as much. Yeah. And are they filling their wellness questionnaire to say, we're not sleeping as much? Of course they're not, because the manager's going to look at it and they're not going to pick them. So therefore, how you use your wellness questionnaire. So more importantly, you know one of your players' wife's just had a baby. Why aren't you saying to him, you know, would you require sleeping in a hotel on the Friday night before the game? You know, you know, and, you know, and we'll support your wife too. So therefore, you get a good night's sleep. You might, would that help you perform? Is there anything we can do to help that? You know it anyway. So do we have to wait for a wellness questionnaire, which players just don't really always want to fill in every day accurately? And obviously, you're doing a lot of mentoring with young coaches now. So what do you think that young coaches have got the ability or... or yeah, yeah, I suppose that's the question. Have they got the ability to have the conversations to find this sort of stuff out? Or do you think that the fact that we've got all the digital the digital age and social media now has stopped people having those conversations or made it harder for the coaches? I think it's, it's harder, but when you point it out, I think they get it quite quickly. Certainly the ones I'm working with, because I drum it over to. Yeah, you know, <laughs> As you can imagine. No, but 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 I think that when they see the results of it, that's what you've got to do. So you can't drum it home too hard at first. You've almost got to drop little seeds. And when they see the benefit of it, and I think, you know, I'm not saying don't do wellness questionnaires and have an app on your phone. But all they should do is then make sure you have a conversation with the player because there might be a valid reason behind that number. Yeah. It's a bit like, you know, I, I can't. I get annoyed when I go into meetings and people are saying, well, we've got the facts here, we've got the facts here, should we play him, yes or no? And I'm going to be like, well, have you spoke to him? No, not yet. Well, why not? Now, don't get me wrong, I want that information. So when I was latterly at Middlesbrough, I never did any of the final stage rehabilitation, so I never saw the players run. I had an excellent physiotherapist in Chris Mosley who would be outside running, but I used to get the GPS data. But from that data, having then assessed the player's injury and spoken to Chris, spoke to the manager, spoke to the player, I could make a very, very informed decision. But I needed the data too. But I also just, sometimes the data would actually get put in the bin because actually the manager wants to go for it, the player wants to go for it. We don't gain three points. He doesn't get a new contract. We get relegated. No one's happy. Yeah. And sometimes you've got to be able to look at it that way and think, well, actually, and that player wants to take the risk. And so you've got to be, but use, using data is vital and I would say it's where I again as I said to you I would say to people in my job I was an artist who used scientific principles and I paint pictures and I merge the pictures so I, I merge colours and I, I, I draw pictures according to what I see but there must be science behind them there, it's a must it's a, but actually the most important bit of science is human science and we can't measure that and be comfortable with that and I know that so because some players you can you know you can tell they've had a bad injury in the past they will never perform with that injury because there's some sort of block that last time they performed with or tried to play with that, they broke down, so they won't do it. Other ones are like, oh, okay, I've never had that before. I'm going to go and play, and you've got to hold them back. You know, yeah. So get, getting to know that person, them, their understanding. Have they made mistakes in their career? Were they, were they, were they shaped by them? Because you'll know yourself. It's a bit like me. I'm very happy. From the age of 11, I realized if I want to progress on in life because I can't read or write, I've got to hold my hand up and say, I don't understand. So if you were in a lot of my classes, you wouldn't like me at school because I was all the one, I'm sorry, I don't understand. But I then did understand because I asked the question rather than sat there and said, oh God, I've got to remain thick. I knew I was thick. I still am thick. But actually, I can progress if I ask questions. Yeah. And I don't mind being stupid because I'll always ask questions. 
I think that's another key bit of advice for any coach, or not even coach, but any any person really, isn't it? Because that's where you, that's where you find the answers. And too many people sit back, sit quiet, and and don't ask the questions and wait for someone else to answer them, ask them. And if they don't get asked, they don't find out. And I, and that's why in mentoring, that's ninety percent of what I do with the people I work with. I don't give them any answers. I just ask them questions, and they actually find the answers because that's what good 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 mentoring and good development of any person is. Same with players. Even with young players at Manchester City, we used to do that from an injury angle. We would always say to them, never with a scholar, give them an answer to the question. Ask them back. So, for example, it could be, Grant, my knee hurts. Why do you think your knee hurts? I don't know. What have you been doing? I've been playing football. No, what did you do playing football? Well, we're doing a lot of shooting. How many shots did you do? I did 50. Okay, does your knee hurt after 50 shots? Yeah. What do you think you do next time? I'm only going to do 40. Well, you're learning. So it was almost a, a and, and I think it, we we're too often ready to want to give answers, and you know, as 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 S and C coaches and physios, you know, we love to feel important. You know, we want to be recognised. So we're, you know, we want to, you know, the best physios and S and Cs are the ones you see the least. Yeah. You know, do you see Sam Meredith? Do you see Tony Strudwick jumping up and down on the touchline, doing this, that, and the other? Do you just quietly go about their business in a professional manner? That usually, you know, gets done in that manner and doesn't really get noticed. And people say, what are they doing? They're not doing much. I guarantee you they're doing plenty behind the scenes. Yeah, a lot of good coaches, I've heard a lot of coaches say about that, that these players should be ready on that match day to adjust. And it's the same uh, tactically or technically as well, isn't it, that... You, you don't always you don't want to be steering them and be like puppets on the pitch they need to adapt don't they listen the modern player is a highly intelligent almost chess piece in a, in a, in a three dimensional game that's changing as coaching staff as S&C staff as medical staff we've got to prepare them for that not make them don't just give them an excel sheet with some so many exercises on and say you know i need you to do x number of reps and we're going to do it three times a week for the next three years how bloody boring you know is it actually this is the program that's going to take you from here to the next level this might get you the next three million pound contract so it's three billion pound contract exercise program why i'm interested suddenly because actually we're going to work on your triple extension but actually your triple extension means you know you'll get there uh, Half a yard quicker, you might get three more goals. Three more goals equals another contract. Talk to them in a language they understand. They're not interested in triple extension. It bores the pants off them. But actually, if triple extension gets them another contract, they're very interested in triple extension. Depends what you call it. And that, because I see that as a really, really crucial skill. Because I've, I've come across a lot of practitioners that the knowledge is unbelievable, but they, they lack that. So what would your advice be to coaches to build that skill of, of actually being able to communicate and talk, like you said, talk their language? I think you have to listen to the players. So therefore, a good example, again, we had a young lad at Manchester City recovering from quite a significant knee injury, didn't like doing leg extension work and had quite a lot of quads atrophy. And he was always complaining that he used to, and he was a young lad still growing, so occasionally he did get all good slats, but it would, so it would have been uncomfortable now and then. And I always remember the, the physio and the S&C was really in, finding it difficult to motivate him to do it. And I remember just talking to him one day, just said, out of interest, you know, why do you play football? What, what's, your, what's your aim in life? And he was 17 at the time. I want to be a millionaire. Oh, that's a great, great idea. I'm, I'm sure it must be highly motivating. You know, some people want to play for England 50 times. Some people want to be a millionaire. That doesn't matter what, it's them. So his was to be a millionaire. And I went, but you see this machine? If it doesn't become your friend, and you actually aren't able to lift it, you're never going to be a millionaire. Why not? Because if you don't get your quad muscle back, 
you never play football at any level and you create so this now and I said and I actually got a bit of paper and wrote a dollar sign and stuck it to the machine and said this is the million dollar babe machine he loved it went on it every day because mm. he thought that machine's going to get him a million pounds mm. so you've got but you've got to listen to them the content I had a young lad at Manchester City who had an ankle problem and it required quite significant ankle surgery and a very bright lad who wanted to work really hard every day and we used to we used to try and get his weight bearing off the flexion back because he was struggling. And again, he was one who and he talked about if I can get a centimetre a day, I feel as if I've earned something. I said, like what? He said it's like putting ten thousand in the bank. I said, well, we'll call it that because actually you've got ten centimetres of weight bearing dorsal flexion. You've got to get a hundred thousand. Until you're there, you can't run. And he used to text me. And I used to text him at night and say, how much is in the bank? Sixty thousand grand for forty thousand to gain. That was his language. Turn it into their language. Make it theirs. Or the other thing can be, you can use things like, you know, who was, I've often said to young players, or it seems simple, who's the most important person in your life to help you be a footballer? And usually it was either a mother, a father, or a grandfather, or a grandmother. And you'll get a story of how important it is for them for, for, for them to please that person. So when these people are misbehaving or, or suddenly, shall we say, not being as professional as they should be, and we all are like that at times, I used to suddenly say to him, well, what do you think granddad would say at the moment? Sorry, Grant. Oh, you're right. Uh, I, I better listen. Yeah. And so sometimes understanding that rather than, hey, you, what do you think you're doing? That's confrontational. Doing it something that appeals to their emotion will check them back into sense far more than thinking, you know, I've got an MSc. I'm very clever at SNC. I mean, that you may as well just push, shove that right down the toilet. It's going nowhere. That is what some coaches do, isn't it? Exactly. Oh, it is. I've seen it so many times and I've heard them. I've, listen to me, I've been to university. Well, excuse me, so of about 50 million people in this world and it means absolutely jack shit when it comes to dealing with human beings. Yeah, it's true. Mm -hmm. And it's finding the why, I suppose, from the player as well, isn't it? And we've, we've, I hear that phrase time and time again, but it's so true. And whenever you're working with people, it always has to come down to that regardless of what they're trying to achieve, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and spending that little bit of time and we all, we all, I also remember, I remember treating Alan Hansen at Lillyshaw latterly in his career. And he had a, quite a limited knee flexion because of a couple of significant injuries. And he was a very bright, as you can imagine, he was an articulate man as he appeared on television. And I remember him saying to me once, do you know, how bad is my knee injury? I went, well, it's not, but you'll get back and play. And he said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stop playing in the next couple of years. Because he said, you know, he said, I don't like football as much as I used to. And I actually much prefer playing golf and spending time with my family. And when I was 24, listening to that, I was shocked. By 35, I totally understood where it came from. You know, and so therefore, you know, again, it's getting to understand, you know, some people, you know, if you play football from, I don't know, these days, 12, 14 to 35 as a professional, probably by that age of 35, when it's beginning to hurt your body every single day to get out of bed, train and young folk are running past you, you will, you will hopefully not fall out of love with the game, but you'll fall out of love with playing the game. Yeah, and then it shows you what's really important at that point, doesn't it? Yes, and and you know, you know, you know, you know, Bill Shankly was probably one of the greatest auditors of football ever heard, and yet when he did say that football was more important than life or death, he was wrong. It's not. You know, if, there are other things why 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 people play football, and it, you know, and I, and I think one of the most one of the things I love about modern football 
is the fact that, that there's a Women's World Cup going on and it's getting wonderful attention, because so it should. I think the fact that, you, you know, there's walking football, there's community programmes in football, people are now recognising it's much more than a Premier League game. You know, it's a global enterprise that anyone can play with any any form of, 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 of male, female, any, you know, Manchester City, on a Monday night in the, in, in, in this training centre, the amputee, the cerebral palsy, and blind team train, they're treated, you know, up to the same facility as the first team. Fantastic. Because they're yeah. part of the community, and that's what it should be. Yeah, it is, definitely. So, to touch on that a little bit, Graham, talking about where football's going, where's sports science going? And this is the, the, the ultimate question. <laughs> big, big question. Where's, I think, first of all, what it's got to do is stop arguing on social media for one. You know, there's a lot of folk who've got good opinions, and that's right, but just be careful because that divides people. And I think there needs to be a consensus of what's good practice. Hence, listen to the likes of people like Paul, you talked about Bradley before. There's some excellent sort of real good scientists out there. And I think it's important to, to follow what is good science, not pseudoscience. Uh, I think we've got to be comfortable with the fact that, you know, we don't have the answers to everything. If you take the, you know, are we going to so hopefully one day reduce the number of hamstring injuries? It would be nice, but probably when we do, we'll get something else. Is that down to the fact we've got variable amounts of playing, different types of pitches, and players are, you know, top speed or acceleration is much greater? I think we've got to be comfortable with that. I think sports science is in a good place. It just needs to ensure it underpins itself with good science and data that is really, really accurate. Because I'm worried that quite well, some of the data I see is, you know, cut the noise. You know, you can cut all that out, cut that out. That's the important bit. And actually, you know, sticking to some real fundamentals, you know. And again, I think nutrition is a massive part of sports science. It's undervalued in certain places, in my opinion. You know, having, you know, and, and from a very young age, particularly in the academy system, we were very big at trying to produce nutritious stacks for our young players at Manchester City rather than getting players to go to McDonald's twice a week. You know, you go to McDonald's twice a week for 10 years, you've probably made, what, how many bad meal choices? You know, 2,000. That's not going to help a professional player later in life or a person to be healthy. But I, I hope sports science spreads. I hope in the academy system, people eventually stay in the academy and don't go to first team because it's a speciality in its own right. I'd like to see people embrace the women's game better. You know, I can I can only talk from experience that that you know when when I was in a previous role in Manchester, if we put a job out in the male academy, we'd get. 500 folk applying, if it was the the female rule, it would be about three. Why? That, to me, is poor because, you know, look at the World Cup. It's a wonderful product. It's a great, you know, and you look at, the, you know, I'm Scottish, but I'm sporting the Lionesses because, you know, Scotland have already been knocked out. I would have sported Scotland first, obviously, you know, and did a little bit of work with the, the, the squad before, the, you know, in their preparation. But I've worked with about seven of the Lionesses. They're wonderful people. And, you know, seeing how well they're doing is is, is a joy for the nation and, and hopefully will inspire younger girls to get involved in sport. You know, when you look at the likes of Steph Horton, the Jill Scotts, they should be role models. You know, they, they are proper role models in society as people, as well as footballers, great stories. And But let's get some quality practitioners involved too. Not that they're not, I'm not saying there's not, but it, I think it's that, you know, people have always said, you know, let's just go to the male side. Why? The female side, to me, equally important. 
And then on the flip of that, and this is a real, um, we've talked about this loads on the network meetings that we run. Uh, as as practitioners, how can we um, improve what the, the, the decision makers think of what we do, if that makes sense? So with the, with the amount of people coming out of university, obviously, and the jobs available, we have to be that bit different, don't we, to, to get opportunities what can we do as practitioners to try and improve those or grow those i think you've got to understand the language of a chief executive or a financial controller uh, and align yourselves more to what they're trying to achieve. So is there, you know, where are they trying to strategically finish in their club? How do they want to achieve that? You know, what can you do to minimize certain aspects of risk of injury, but also be realistic if you've got an aging squad, you're not likely to do. So it's how you sell what you do and be realistic because I think you still get some very, you know, younger practitioners coming out and thinking, well, you know, I'm going to take this squad and we'll have zero rate injuries. Well, good luck. Ain't going to happen. But how do you mitigate risk? How do you understand that? What is the individual profile? Selling that to the to the club and why you then want certain finance to sort of back it. But also then show yourself to be able to review that if it does happen. And, and yes, pat yourself on the back. But also when it doesn't happen, you know, look at it and then what would you do differently? And, don't, and, and you know, I'm a great believer. I treat victory, defeat the same. You know, it's a process. You know, when we win, don't get me wrong, I'm happier than when we lose, but I'm not going to get too down when we lose. Walter Smith taught me that from a very young age. He taught me that winning wasn't down to me, but not no was losing. Mm-hmm. So be consistent. And I think, you know, what I want to see, don't get me wrong, I love to see practitioners on the edge of a game jump up and down when they score, but we're not players. You know, and we've got to realise there's a difference. And I think there's also a way of conducting ourselves. And, you know, we are part of the team and, you know, when a team wins and you see someone collecting the trophy, do I want to see all the support staff there? Of course I do. I really do, because I think, you know, they all play a part. But I think it's, I think it's understanding football from a, from a chief executive's eyes. Of, you know, he will, you know, I remember Keith Lamb at Middlesbrough used to often say to me, Grant, you know, I've got, I've got five pounds of requests, but I've got 50 pence. How do I divide it? You know, which piece do you want? How are you going to fight for that corner? And so you used to understand the importance of it and, it can be too easy to go to clubs where there's, shall we say, money you can spend on equipment easily. But is that really going to guarantee you success? Yeah, and it's it's giving the like you said again. It comes down to speaking the language, doesn't it? Giving it not just the fact that I want that I want an old board because it's going to make hamstrings stronger. That doesn't give the full reason to to people that are making the decisions, does it? So it's like you said. It's looking at all the stakeholders from the manager, the players. Because you get an odd board, and suddenly people start testing players. That's the players saying, "Why are you doing that to me?" You know. And so, does anyone ever turn around and actually sit down informally? And I don't mean with a PowerPoint, because you'd bore the modern players. Do you sit around to them with a, like a Costa-style coffee and sit around and discuss with them? Well, do you know it's really interesting? Last year, you know, our injury problems were in these areas. So, what we've actually, as a group of people, got together, we feel if we do this, it would help. What do you think? Is there anything you think we could do too? And then you get, excuse me, uh, you get information from the players, from the coaching staff. And it could be the chief executive because you've actually worked out that last year, every single hotel you stayed in away had shit beds. That's probably going to cause you as many hamstring problems as anything to do with an odd board. 
But are you prepared to look at that? Are you prepared to look at the nutrition when you have a weight? So you look at the details. Do you do a significant event analysis at the end of the season, invite all these people in and show them what, how you're trying to critique? This is what we've done this year. This is what we said we would do. We've done these five things really well. These two we need to do better. How are we going to do them better? And I, and I use the word we, not I. Not how can I do it better, how I'm going to point at you, but how are we, how could we, could we improve this at all? Is there more money in the budget? No, there's not. Right. Well, how else could we get, how could we do that then? Well, we could do it differently that way. Do we have to go by bus to that game? It's working out all of the little things, but understanding, you can't just suddenly say, right, we have to fly to every match because that's going to probably put 250,000 on the budget. It might not be that. But actually, could we stay overnight after the long trips, then try back the next day or actually have budget so we play London twice, we don't have to travel back by bus twice? Ah, yeah, we can do that. Good. That's a win. But you've got to talk their language to understand. Because why are we trying to do that? We're trying to get more points. More points means prizes. And that comes as being part of like a cohesive team, doesn't it? It's not like you said you use we, not I. Exactly. And, 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 and letting them see your actions and letting them, you know, I think it's something I also remember when Tony Mulberry came to Middlesbrough, Tony, very first thing he said to me, just to let you know, Grant, to fall out with all physios. So we'll probably fall out in the first week. I said, out of interest, Tony, why, why do you think you do that? He went, well, he said, I've always been really interested in injuries and I like to be in the first five minutes of the medical meeting to find out what's happening. Uh, but the physios don't want me in it. I mean, you can come and mind any time you want. I said, but after five minutes, you can leave because then we'll go into detail. That's all I want, Grant. No problem. Do it. And we did it. And then I never had to report to him later on in the day. And he often asked a lot of questions, but he was just interested. Now, a lot of folk were saying, what are you questioning me for? I'm the physio. You're the manager. Well, that's his right to ask. And I think inexperienced people don't read. And I'd never had a manager in my life come in, but it made no difference. You know, four weeks later, I'm playing golf with Tony in the afternoon and we still keep in touch. Because we developed a relationship. I actually, yeah, come in. It's no problem to me. I'd never had it before. Now, when we were going to talk about something that was, shall we say, maybe medical and confidence, I would have waited to the end of the meeting. I'm astute enough and experienced enough to do that. And then, then Tony used to say, Grant, is that enough? And I would kind of go now. Yeah, you can go now. Because now I'm going to talk about how we're going to treat the players that day. But it was that type of understanding that, you know, I understood where he came from. I knew what Keith Lamb at Middlesbrough wanted from medicals. He wanted me to find anything that possibly he could actually negotiate a slight reduction in transfer fee or wages because it was a probability of risk study. And so knowing what they are looking for and then trying to help them means that when you're looking for something, they're more likely to want to help you because you share the same goal. Yeah. You know, you, you know, I remember not that long ago talking to an S&C coach at a club that had, had possibly, shall we say, underachieved in that season. Very good Premier League finish, but possibly underachieved. And his, his words were, were to me, well, you know, I'm not that bothered because actually injury stats and fitness-wise, we were really good, so it wasn't down to me. Now, I can't see that there's any part of me would ever say that ever. So, for example, when I was at Rangers and we won nine championships in a row, we had a horrendous injury record, looked horrendous, but we won nine championships in a row. History. Every member of staff got a bonus. Everyone was on cloud nine. Middlesbrough, five years, six years, seven years later, we get relegated from the premiership with a very good injury record. I have to make two staff redundant. Which one's more successful? I know which one I'll choose. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because at the end of the season, I spoke to Callum Walsh about this, that it, 
all the records come out and you do you have to look at the whole package you can't take these these individual results uh, as and take that as uh, the be all and end all can you well i was i was recently in a, a country in spain and i was looking at the the league table of soft tissue injuries in spain and the team the team that finished bottom or had the most number of soft tissue injuries in spain last year was barcelona so they did the worst injury record. Do you think they're bothered about that with the number of games they play and where they finished? Sure, the, the people, the decision makers won't be that bothered. <laughs> no, exactly, they're not because they expect it by the number of games they play and the exposure to what they have. It's normal, probably, and you know their staff aren't going to get judged on where that. Now, don't and I'm sure. Yeah, I don't know their KPIs. It's got nothing to do with me. But all I'm saying is we we can use stats sometimes to suit what we think we we want. But just be careful because it can come back. You know, when you get... You know, I remember, again, when I was the first season I was at Manchester City and, and we were fortunate enough to win the Premier League, I think, after 44 years. And that year, Man City had very few injuries. And, and everyone was saying, brilliant. You know, sports science staff have done very well and the medical staff have done very well. And I was temporarily in charge at that time. And I said to the board, well, and they were like, have the staff done very well? I went, yeah, the staff have worked exceedingly hard. And they said to me, you know, you're not really overpaying them a compliment. I went, well, if I do, what are you going to do next year if you get a bad injury rate? They said, well, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be asking questions. So I said, I'm not going to overcompliment them. And then the following year when they picked up a lot of injuries, the board went, pretty normal this in football, isn't it, Grant? Yeah, it's pretty normal. <laughs> if you'd want the praise, you're going to take the shit the following year. Yeah. The secret is, can you treat them both the same? And, and look for things. And why did City pick up more injuries in the second year? Probably because everyone wanted to beat them. Emotional stress. Stress levels are higher, as you were saying. And you don't control that. And so we have to be very careful about rewarding ourselves for things that are just partially in our control. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's... Uh... Really good way of looking at things. I really like that. What What I was going to ask you, because um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, looking at the clock there, that's absolutely flown by already. I can't believe it. Um, but what's the future hold for you? Future hold for me? Personally, I'm moving house in ooh, five weeks' time. I'll go to the Isle of Arran. I've always loved the Isle of Arran. It's a very small island on the west coast of Scotland. And I've always wanted to sort of... I dream of mine from a young boy. I went there with my parents every year. And I wanted to go and live there. So I've just... Finished well. I haven't personally built a house. I just had a house built there for me, so I'm going to live there. Uh, I still will do some consultative work. I still consult for the City Football Group, uh, the Premier League, and the Scottish Football Association. I mentor six foot privately. This last year, I've I've sort of spoken and and visited and and sort of consulted in where in China, Japan, uh, South Korea, Australia. Barbados, Spain. Uh, I probably hope they don't do quite as much, and, and in the UK too. But that's fun, you know. And I've I, 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 I've thought about writing a book. I, I would love to get round to get the time to do it, but because I'm dyslexic, it's not that easy. Uh, and that's probably a, a bad excuse if I'm being truthful. Uh, but I, I, I will try to do that. But you know, I, I love I love my mentorship work. I, I mentor people in this country. I, I do one from Barbados, and it's nice to go to other parts of the world where people aren't as privileged as us and help people who, you know, and, and I like helping people. I might even go back and work a little bit in the NHS. I don't know. I actually, I, I, I started in hospitals where I treated, as I call, real people with real injuries. Football is just entertainment, you know, and I, I may get involved. The Isle of Ireland is its own team and they've asked me to maybe help them, of which I will with pleasure. 
you know, I want to be the manager. I don't want to be the physio. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I just want a bit. I just want a bit of fun. But I, 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 I like helping people. And if anyone wants to, if they've got an appetite to learn, and and I can help, I'm delighted to help people because I, I've been helped with people. And Walter Smith did one thing to me the day I started at Rangers, and I've always maintained that. He gave me a pile of letters the first day I got there and said, "Fans will write to you. You reply to every letter. Never forget it. You're part of a community." And I've, I've replied to every letter I've all had even if it was a no, because I think, you know, there's a younger, as younger physios, S&Cs, we, we get far too many people who just don't even bother. You know, I, I'm never too big to reply to anyone, or if anyone's got a question, they can ask me. I'm, I'm relaxed about it. I, can't, I don't have all the answers, but I, 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 I love seeing other people develop because, again, this 11-year-old boy, if he hadn't been given a chance by someone else, I wouldn't be talking to you today. Yeah, and that's it, isn't it? And all it takes is someone to give it, someone a chance, and sometimes it can create a career and a life for someone. So, absolutely. Oh, it's amazing, mate. I, I really appreciate your time, Grant, and I hope you do bring that book out. Um, I'm sure there'll be. It sounds like the perfect place to go and um, get it done up there, and I'd be one of the first ones to buy it. I know that, so I'm sure there'll be a lot of people out there that'll want to hear all these stories in a bit more depth. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I hope that I hope that is the case. But in terms of the the mentorship, yeah. if people are interested, because we have a lot of coaches that listen to this, so if they are interested and they want to get in touch with you, where's the best place? Probably best is you can contact me through my. I I, I developed a, a little website. It's on what is it? www.grantdowney.co.uk. Uh, you, you can sign up as a member. The membership's free. It's not. It's just so I I actually are interested to people who got it. I have a lot of my material on there which is free i don't i don't charge anyone for the stuff it to me it's it's stuff i've just learned from other people so there's lots of stuff there if people are interested or they've got questions you know there's a and that then sends me a link to to their email so i can reply to them that way that's the best way uh, and if people want information i'm happy there there's a lot on the website as you've probably checked yourself you know that was fun developing and you know again it's, it's mainly it's, i've tried to make it as personal as possible because it's about it's about my journey and things i've learned and hopefully I've posted some of the talk, all the talks I now do, I sort of post on there so people can download copies of them. And, you know, that, you know, and again, it's information. And I think the key, I'm lucky, I think I have got leadership skills because I've led from a very young age and I've never been on one defined leadership course. But my biggest advice to, to, to S&C and, and physio practitioners listening is go, go and sometimes watch someone else work who does something very different to you. But actually, how do they achieve what they do? And sometimes look at the processes and look at their look at the human skills and look at people who who get the most out of people. So why did you know why someone and you know you're not going to be able to go and watch someone like Pep Guardiola work because for obvious reasons. But you know is he so successful because tactically he's one of the best coaches in the world? Yes, he is. But he's also you know one person who understands human beings tremendously well too and actually treats all of the players uniquely different and the special people. Look how he treated. David Silva, when his baby wasn't very well a year and a half ago, but what did that do to the rest of the players in that squad when they realised they've got a manager who will put our results before for for them? So therefore, I think it's important, younger practitioners, just go and study some different people. You can do it in history, get good history books, look at people like Nelson Mandela or Barack Obama, different people like that. You know, Alistair Campbell's written an excellent book on, on winners. And 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 looking at different aspects of it. Don't just try and get better at that technical, that, that little bit that you're already pretty good at and I've got great qualifications in. 
but probably not that many qualifications in life yet. Yeah, you know, I'm a full, um, firm believer that you can learn from absolutely anyone, even if it's learning how not to do something. You can still you can still learn from everyone, can't you? Yeah. Well, listen, it's sometimes good to see bad practice, and you said it very well there. Sometimes bad practice reaffirms what is good practice, and I have no problem with actually sometimes sending people to places that are not that what I would call great at what they do. They come back and say, by the way, what we're doing here is not that bad, is it? No, it's not that bad. Yeah. No, that's true. Very true. Well, listen, Grant, thank you so much for coming. Thanks. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I wish you all the best with the move. And hopefully we'll uh, we'll stay in touch. Of course. You're welcome anytime. Happy to speak again anytime you want. Thanks a lot, mate. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the show with Grant. It was great to have him on. Really appreciate his time. And thank you again to Callum for the recommendation of getting Grant on. I think there was so much information in that episode. I've got a full page of notes. Um, just a few of the areas that I took or some of the notes I took from that where, where Grant talks about treating the person, not the injury. I think that's really key. Also, when he spoke about GPS, uh, missing the emotional and psychological fatigue or loading of a player, I think that's important and something that coaches need to take into consideration. And then one of the biggest takeaways for me was speak, to speak the board's language. So we talk a lot, especially in our network meetings, about the decision makers at clubs and how we can influence their decision on giving people jobs or, or pay. And I think speaking the board's language is really key and a really key bit of advice from Grant. You can go and follow all Grant's work. His website is www.grantdowney.co.uk. There's some top testimonials on there, including Gareth Southgate, so go and check it out. And he's also on Twitter at Grant underscore Downey. So go and keep an eye out for all of his work, especially the mentorship work he's, he's doing at the moment with coaches. We're only a few days away now from our next meeting, which is going to be at Leighton Orient. So we've got Ross Bennett presenting for us. Really looking forward to the meeting. And we are very close to announcing our next meeting as well. So hopefully that will be out. All the information will be out next week, um, which is a little bit closer to home for us, which is great. And I'm looking forward to bringing you all the information for that. Like I said at the start of the show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. That would be amazing. And give us any feedback on this episode with Grant. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to him and I really appreciate him coming on. And we'll speak to you again next week.